Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. I'm Glenn McDorman. I'm Brandon Buddha. Today, we're covering Gene Wolfe's short story, Fag. Uh, this was a story published in 1975 in Continuum 5, edited by Roger Elwood. So we're doing sort of a strange thing here, which is that Thag is part of a short story cycle that also includes The Dark of the June, The Death of Heil, and From the Notebook of Dr. Stein, all of which were published in earlier volumes of Continuum. Thag is the last story in this cycle. Somehow, this story made it in the Patreon voting. But those other three didn't. Uh, I probably should have included them as one entry, but I didn't think about it when we did that like two and a half years ago now. Uh, (laughs) But I do think actually that this story works just fine as a standalone story. There is, of course, though, an entire element of it that we won't talk about because we're dealing with it in isolation. But I think that will be fun. And then someday, maybe next year, I guess, uh, taking a break from peace, we can cover the other three on Patreon and and then revisit this one in light of the others. So it will be kind of a weird conversation about this story, but I think it will also be a fun conversation. And I enjoyed this story even in in isolation. But uh, uh, let's just uh, let's just get into it. Brandon, take us away. It is a very strange story. And I do think that looking at it in context of other stories as part of a story cycle, uh, would clear up some of the sort of fuzzy material <laughs> that is present in it. Uh, this this is kind of a fun story. It is it is a jokey story, uh, and it opens like this: Once upon a time, there was a boy named Eric, who had a tame raven and a ragged cap and no boots, and lived with his mother in a cottage in the forest. This is how Thag begins, as I said, and this is really Gene Wolfe's jokey riff on fairy tales and maybe why we tell them. Right. I mean, that is what this story is going to be about. We get some other elements here. I mean, that's kind of the opening line that you gave us. But this opening paragraph then also includes, uh, lets us know that we've got a stock character of uh, a poor boy with at least one dead parent. There's uh, a magical trinket, uh, though in this case, that trinket is right there from the start. Of course, a lot of fairy tales are the tales of how they come to possess that trinket. Uh, At least the first act often is that. Uh, Wolf skips all of that here. And This is something that we're going to take up in the discussion, right, is to look at the way that Wolf is playing with these stock elements and the traditions of fairy tales, uh, because right away he starts to play with some of those conventions. And there's so many little details that he adds in here that you don't think of as being part of fairy tales, but are kind of part of the uh, folkloric tradition. But, you know, those will come up in a moment. As we said, although Eric and his mother are poor, they do have a very powerful charm that takes the form of a bear's skull, or rather the bear's skull houses the charm or is the charm. It hangs in the rafters, and it was made by Eric's great-grandfather through some magical and alchemical processes. And here Wolf adds things like the urine of shadows into his ingredient (laughs) list of how this charm was made. And this charm is home to a thing called... Thag. Thag is a powerful spirit, though he rarely lives inside the skull, although it was his home. And and Wolf makes uh, an analogy here to the way bees buzz around a hive. They might not always be inside of it, but they always return there eventually. 
I love the the details that Wolf embeds in, in here, uh, this uh, this business with the urine of a shadow, and he gives us just the whole history of this magical trinket to to begin with. This adds real depth to the world. It makes this feel like it is a a, a real world. And uh, I would read some of these other stories that Wolf is just kind of tossing out as ideas here in this opening paragraph. He does a lot of exceptional world building in about three paragraphs uh, in this story, which I, which I think is fantastic. And one of the ways he does that is by just giving things really specific names. Uh, and I'll get to that in a moment. But while Eric and his mother are picking mushrooms, this is just a day in the life of Eric and his mother, Eric asks about the last time the thag had returned home to his bear skull. He was too young to remember the event because it, it took place the winter just after he was born. And Eric loves to hear this story from his mother because his mother adds to it with each retelling. And also, as we'll discover, it's about his father, really. So when when Thag last returned, Thag helped Eric's father make the trees dance on the high road, and he built a hall of glass on Nine Men's Meadow, and he also had forced, quote, certain rich men in the town to disgorge a part of what they had won by law from the poor country folk. And this was a bridge too far, as it turns out. And for this offense, for getting rich men to return money back to the poor, Eric's father was hanged. And the hanging is a big event. This is a big festival. It turns into a fair. And Eric and his mother are really just the center of attention. Eric knew that if Thag ever returned, this is now, you know, after the story's told, he would surpass his father's exploits, both in wonder and boldness with the aid of Thag. And it just so happened that Thag returned that very night, the night of the mushroom picking morning and the stories and then the stories about his father. Uh, and Thag came to Eric in a dream where Eric saw a running man in crimson and gold who, who carried a naked falchion. And it was Thag's custom, as Eric knew, to appear as a man in dreams. But behind Thag were three figures deep in the dream landscape that were barely visible, and Eric did not pay attention to them. And that's going to come up in a little bit. Wolf gets us going really fast here, as as he so often does. But as we've, I think, said a lot already, he does pack so much into these opening few paragraphs. It's really only a page and a half in that we actually get, okay, Thag is here with Eric, and uh, that's going to be our story. But I really love the character of Eric's father, who's... Uh, you know, got a bit of uh, of Robin Hood going on, though I guess in the end he doesn't actually win the way that Robin Hood usually does. Uh, but I love this this tale of this guy who's trying to really essentially rob from the rich to to give to the poor, which is to say to return the uh, extracted uh, wealth of the poor to them uh, from the people who have exploited them in order to get it in the first place. Uh, it's always interesting to see Wolf just sort of embedding his politics in in these ways in his stories. I, I can only imagine what Gene Wolfe would comment about, you know, the transfer of wealth again from the like middle class to the wealthy during the 2008 financial crisis. And then again, as it's happened during the coronavirus pandemic, that this kind of looting of the poor and middle class has been going on forever. 
And I don't know if Wolf is really making a, a Marxist comment here so much as he's noting that this is just how a lot of economic systems in our world have functioned as long as we've had a world. Yes, I think Wolf absolutely thinks that. I mean, this is something that we're going to see more and more of as Wolf transitions from being primarily a science fiction writer to being primarily a fantasy writer, which is uh, not that far in our future now. Yes, and I and, and I can't wait to get there. Well, Eric wakes up from this dream that he's had about Thag returning, and Gnip, the raven, says, mystery. And then there's a humming from inside the bear's skull. So what Eric does is propitiate Thag, and he knows that once he finishes doing that, he will be able to do anything he wants. And here the narrative shifts. It zooms over to the castle of the king, a king named Charles the Wise, which is a fitting name, perhaps, as we'll see. <laughs> uh, and this is our introduction to the king. He's sleeping in, or rather sleeping late, which is maybe not something wise men do. And he's awoken by three things at once. The first thing is the queen running into his bedroom, screaming. The second is a shouting from the bailey and the sounds of a skirmish. The third is that of the castle beginning to rock back and forth, so much so that Charles feels as though he is on a ship in the middle of a storm. The queen begs Charles to save her and goes on to explain that all of the knights have abandoned the kingdom and the archers have left their posts with their bows unstrung. And she believes they're all doomed. And at this point, the king begins to think about his situation. This is maybe a wise action, though perhaps sometimes action <laughs> needs to replace <laughs> thought in a crisis. And he remembers that his father had told him that kings sit on three-legged stools. The legs of the stool is the army, ca the castle, and the treasury. So Charles realizes that if his army has already scattered... And if he abandons his castle where the treasury is, he'd have nothing. He wouldn't have anything to say, and he wouldn't possess anything that would make him a king. So he decided to stay and confront the conquering power. Perhaps in doing so, he could convince the conqueror to keep Charles Aunt as a vassal lord, especially as he knew all about the complicated taxation processes, uh, which are, are something that a new conquering lord might need to have expertise in if he's going to continue to build the kingdom's treasury. So the king leaves the room to confront this power, but all he runs into is the boy Eric. The king asks Eric where everyone went, and Eric replies sort of nonchalantly that many people have run away, and many people have also been eaten. At this moment, the raven flies into the room and lands on Eric's shoulder, which signals to the king that Eric must be a great magician and that the raven is Eric's powerful, familiar spirit. The fact that Eric is a child is easily explained because why wouldn't a magician manifest himself as a child? The king certainly wishes he could go be a child again. Uh, and, and obviously we're seeing here that the king is a bit of a buffoon. Yeah, though I, I love Charles the Wise here. I mean, the introduction of him is awesome. The list of the three things that woke him up is, I mean, it's funny, right? Listing them in the opposite order of their significance. And I think the opposite order in which most of us would notice them, right? There's the real insinuation here that he was sleeping through something that's more or less an earthquake and that it's only his wife shouting at him that actually wakes him wakes him up. And, you know, there's, there's some comedy there. I do want to say that there is a historical Charles the Wise 
who was the the king of France in the the second half of the 14th century uh, during a little bit of the early phases of the the Hundred Years' War. That is clearly not where or when this story takes place, though, right? This takes place in a fantasy world, as as really all fairy tales do, even the ones that claim to be historical, as so many of them do. But I do love that Charles demonstrates the qualities of his sobriquet. I mean, I know, Brandon, that you're pointing out the ways in which he's a buffoon, and I think that those are are true and something Wolf has in mind. But I do also think that Wolf has in mind a very specific way in which Charles is wise. He's a technocrat, right? He's someone who understands how to read the tax rolls and how to navigate the palace, and, and someone who knows that those are valuable skills. So, you know, wise is probably not the sobriquet we would give to someone like that. But if we're thinking about the Middle Ages, then that's kind of a, a one word fits all smart people uh, sort of type of designation, right? Uh, right. And so you would you, you might use this word to mean this type of, of skill set as well, even though it's clear that this is kind of slimy bureaucraties uh, from Wolf's perspective here. It is, and the king is good at self-preservation, which I think uh, the king would congratulate himself or call himself wise for knowing how to save himself as his kingdom crumbles. And, and, and that's basically what happens. Eric becomes the ruler of the country, and he gives his mother a kingdom of her own, but she won't stay there. Apparently, she's visiting Eric too much and trying to be a mom, uh, so he shuts her up inside of a bottle. <laughs> Eric reigns without aging for 30 years, and as he's doing this, the kingdom grows wild and overgrown. Deer and foxes run around, wolves breed in wineries, undines from the sea come up the river ten leagues beyond the ford. The trolls break loose, and evil goblins stand guard at the castle Barbican. And all of that's fine in this story. I mean, everybody's basically evacuated the kingdom. Uh, but it's also fine because Eric is exceedingly happy. Basically, Wolf is saying no harm is done, and the magical creatures get to to live in the in the in the sunshine. Yeah, this I mean, this is the return of of a natural ecosystem in the absence of of people, I guess, right? With the the wolves and the foxes, but then yeah, we get these fairy tale creatures, trolls, and goblins. We do need to emphasize uh, for the future, thinking of the future uh, future conversations we will have on this podcast. We need to emphasize the undine uh, because this is not going to be the last time that we talk about Gene Wolf using this word. Uh, we will spend more time on it when we do that much more significant work. Uh, but for now, we should say that you know. An undine uh, refers to an elemental water spirit. It could be a nymph, maybe, but often just depicted as kind of a, a mermaid. And I, I do think that mermaid is more what Wolf has in mind here. Yeah, I think so, too, because we're, we're dealing with a sort of litany of magical creatures. Thag has moved into the dungeons. And when Eric leaves the castle to go hunting, he's often riding a magical creature like a griffin or a unicorn when he does so. He turns back to the castle and, and he recognizes that the castle is changing shape. It's beginning to resemble the skull of a bear. King Charles, who Eric has changed the name to the Foolish, still lives in the castle with the queen. And they both serve Eric along with their son, Prince Robert. And while the king has suffered a loss of pride, he, he consoles himself by saying that the kingdom is still technically rich because Eric 
spends no money maintenancing anything like the roads or the kingdom or the land or anything like that. So Charles still feels okay, not great, that he still has his castle and his treasury. One night, three remarkable figures appear literally out of nowhere. The first is a beautiful blonde girl. The second, a dark-haired woman, also beautiful. And the third is a man who is very strong with a gray beard and one eye. And this moment the man appeared, a roar of anguish emitted from the dungeons. Eric's raven, Gnip, also flew through the window, another moment where the raven flies into the room and it lands on the one-eyed man's shoulder, kind of signifying a, a shift in power, perhaps. The man says to the woman that they have arrived at some sort of castle. And the woman says that she heard Thag roar and asks how long Thag had been in the castle, in the dungeons. Eric says that it's been 30 years to which the man replies that time really flies here pretty fast. He thought they were much nearer to Thag. He didn't think it would take them 30 years to catch them, obviously, from when they appeared in Eric's dream. The woman says that they were really close, but time does move quickly here indeed. For instance, 30 years can pass between paragraphs. And this statement confuses the man, uh, rightly so. It's a confusing sentiment for a character <laughs> in a story to have. At this point, the king and queen enter the room where Eric and these three strangers are. And the king addresses the man as Great Woden. The women he refers to as Frigg and Freya. King Charles tells them that he has been defrauded of his throne. He asks that they slay the monster and grant him justice. The women says to the man that, hey, this guy thinks we're Norse gods. And the girl chimes in, don't you see, daddy? We're in a book. The, the man says, that's impossible. The girl then briefly describes the furniture in the room and, and the plot of the story they're in from their perspective, including an evil magician, a king who's been taken from his throne, a demon that needs to be slayed, and kind of all the great elements of a fun adventure fairy tale. Yeah, this stuff is really interesting. We're going to be taking that up in the discussion. I want to just pause for a second on Woden, Frigg, and Freya. Uh, these are Germanic gods. I think we probably know them best today from Norse mythology, uh, simply because there's a surviving literary tradition from uh, Norse mythology in the, the Middle Ages. But they were a part of the cultural landscape of most Germanic speakers in antiquity and the, the early Middle Ages, uh, including the, the Anglo-Saxons, for example, and uh, the names of some of our days of the week derived from them for this reason. We have Woden's Day, we have Frigg's Day, uh, though of course we usually call them Wednesday and Friday now. Also Thor's Day, uh, who's part <laughs> yes. of the Sadly, as well. not appearing in this film. <laughs> no, not in this one. Obviously, Eric and uh, the king and queen are sort of standing there dumbfounded, but Eric is game and he's playing along with this sort of odd improv improvisational scenario he's found himself in. And he asks them whether... This group of people, these three who have arrived, he's asked, he asks them whether they're saying, whether he's heard them right, that he and the king and queen are characters in a book that they're reading in whatever place that they come from, the strangers. And the man says that this might be a fairy tale, but he doesn't believe that. And in continuing the conversation, he asks Eric if he's well read by the standards of whatever 
world, whatever fairy tale world they found themselves in. Eric admits that he is well read. And so the man asks, in all the books that you've read, do the characters ever read themselves in the book they're reading? Not necessarily as characters, but do, do characters ever read in books? And Eric says that that's never happened as far as he knows in the stories he's read. And he goes on to say that characters are always going somewhere. And I, and I take this to mean, I take Eric's statement here to mean something like, characters in the books in the world that he lives in don't read books because it's not an interesting action. It's not communicating anything to the reader about the adventure the characters are on. And the man responds to this. He says, in our world, you see, it would be quite possible for a character in a book to sit peacefully before his fire reading the short stories of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And just as the man says this, makes this odd reference to the to the great Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, Fag rushes into the room in the form of a headless bear bleeding all over the place from his neck stump. Woden asks Frigg if he should kill him. And Frigg says that if Woden does, it will be the end of the story. They'll have resolved all the conflicts and things will be turned to right. And if they kill him here, Fag is probably just going to turn up in another story because this place doesn't really seem like the right place for him. He's trapped in this story. And Frigg says this is probably a very low energy level for him as it is for us. And Thag actually seems to be trying to get killed here by Woden. And that's not a good sign for Frigg because it's not a very interesting conflict in, in the story if the bad guy wants to get killed. And Thag is evil, so he really shouldn't get what he wants anyway. Woden agrees with all of this and says the thing to do then is to keep Thag trapped in this story world. So Woden drives his spear into the bear's heel, pinning it to the oak floor of the hall. And he basically tells Eric to carry on with his whatever he's doing, carry on using Thag for magic or whatever. But if Eric lets Thag go now, after this whole event, he'll, Thag will probably try to escape. And if Thag escapes into another story, Woden will return to make Eric sorry for letting Thag out of this story. Frigg whispers to Freya in a parenthetical paragraph here, a wolf classic, if you will. Uh, Frigg whispers the following. There has to be a world that corresponds to each of our fictions, dear, since what never was nor will be is inconceivable. Still, I wonder what Thag really is. As she says this, Thag turns into a snake and tries to strike Frigg. Uh, for probably just for being onto him, because Thag does not want to be in the story anymore. <laughs> Eric asks the man then if his true name is not Woden. The man says his name is Harry Naylor. Eric thinks it's a fitting name because he heard Harry Naylor, as in a hirsute person who uses nails or like spears to nail things to places, I suppose, the Thag <laughs> to oak floors. Then the three strangers leave, and Eric thinks about what he'll be able to do to the king uh, with Thag as soon as they leave. And he does those things that he's been thinking about to the king, and he lived in the most literal sense of the words, happily ever after. And that is the end of Thag. 
Yeah, so so much of this here at the end is material that corresponds to the three previous stories. And and really, it's this material that concludes the entire story cycle, really. And as we said at the top of the show, I mean, someday maybe we'll go back and do this whole thing. But I do think this story works just fine on its own. Uh, Harry Naylor is, I think, you know, as dad jokes go, pretty funny. I am a dad now, so I'm finding <laughs> that I enjoy these types of jokes more than I uh, uh, than I did a year ago. Right, this whole idea of well, he's Harry, and he just used a spare to nail a beer, nail a bear to the floor, uh, did actually make me laugh <laughs> a little bit. So, uh, so there's that. <laughs> Yeah, it is funny. I mean, it it, it just I, I wonder if I had read the other stories in the story cycle, if realizing all of all of it was building up to a pun, I don't know what my experience would be. I don't know what the other stories are like, um, but certainly this story working as a sort of build up to a pun, it's pretty funny. And he is and Wolf is doing some really strange meta literary stuff in this story that Kind of reminds me of, you know, Vonnegut's character, uh, Kilgore Trout, who's this sort of alternate identity of himself, who's all of his bad ideas uh, or the science fiction novels he wishes he could write, but he can't figure out the way to write them end up being written by this character, Kilgore Trout. Thag sort of reminds me of a character that's a bad idea or a bad idea for a story that you, you can't get rid of. It's always in your head. You're trying to work on it. You can't crack it. Uh, so you just maybe trap it in a little story and let it go. Yeah, the whole the whole story cycle is actually, I think, Gene Wolfe's most Philip K. Dick story. So I would love to go back and and do the whole thing someday, and and especially thinking of it in terms of uh, of uh, Ubik, which is a, a Philip K. Dick novel that uh, that I've always really really enjoyed. But uh, and I do want to talk about this metafictional stuff going on here. But I actually want to start by taking this story maybe more at face value at maybe kind of ignoring the last page and a half or so <laughs> and just treat this as a, a fairy tale, which is, I think, clearly something that Wolf had on his mind. This is not the only fairy tale uh, story that he was writing in this period. Uh, eventually, we are going to do The Devil in a Forest. And Wolf is really starting to think more about fantasy stories than he has been, than we've seen him doing up until this point. So uh, maybe let's just talk about this story as a fairy tale. We did some bit of this as we went, but let's uh, let's just catalog some of the fairy tale elements do we see. I guess really what I'm asking, Brandon, is in what way does this story feel like or work as a fairy tale for you? Well, the setup is classic, right? It starts with Once Upon a Time. It ends with Happily Ever After. This is uh, a, a kind of classic, at least Disney, maybe Disney-fied uh, fairy tale formula. Uh, you know, the grim... Fairy tales, the Germanic ones, are often about uh, lessons or morals or getting people to think about uh, their own viciousness. I mean, the classic sort of punishment for poor behavior in Grimm's fairy tales is asking, is really fooling the person who actually was responsible for doing the wrong thing into scapegoating somebody else, asking them what they would do to that person who did these terrible things and then having that punishment kind of visited upon them. So there's this big sort of moral element to fairy tales. Uh, but there's also these other elements, the, the kids in the woods uh, who are lost, the, the parent who is gone or dead, um, 
the the magical item that is found that that profoundly changes the kid's life in some way or forces them to encounter the new the world with a, a greater sense of adult responsibility um, by outwitting adults and in, in doing so kind of losing the innocence of childhood. This story is maybe a celebration of the innocence of childhood in a way that many fairy tales are not by couching this story in this fairy tale esque veneer and then allowing the child to not grow up, but also saying that this is a story that people are telling each other. Uh, it just adds this layer of uh, uh, like a, a self built critique of the loss of innocence found in many fairy tales uh, into itself. And uh, you get a different experience. You get a different sense of the the joy of childhood in here that you don't find in many fairy tales, which I really appreciate about this story. And that's something that Wolf brings so much to his fiction. And and yeah, I mean, let's think a little bit about what's wolfish about this world or about this narrative. And I think that emphasis is definitely one of them. I do also think the the hodgepodge, the really jumbling up, the sort of layering on thick of all of the kind of stock characters of a fairy tale that just get sort of mentioned in lists, right? There's kind of a lot of listing going on here, which generally is not a good thing to do, but somehow, I mean, Wolf is just such a gifted writer that he manages to pull off listing things in a way that seems artful and that actually brings me into the story. But just throwing all of these elements in together without necessarily thinking about uh, how they might work or, you know, just having trolls be in the background of this kind of landscape of this story without them actually having any anything to do with the plot, for example, um, is maybe a particularly wolfish way of doing things, right? Of always thinking kind of metatextually, always thinking about genre and playing with genre conventions and, and giving us a little bit of a, a mashup here. Uh, were there some other like sort of wolfish things that you saw about this take on the fairy tale? Well, we mentioned Undines already, but the, this use of magical creatures uh, is going to become, I think, classic wolf. We haven't really seen anything like that up until this point. Um, but the, I guess we did a little bit in Tracking Song with the dwarf uh, and the robots, but wolf is, wolf is thinking about what these creatures are. And as he moves more into the kind of science fantasy realm, um, he is going to begin to look at like what explanation could there be for rumors of such creatures as these existing and there's genetic splicing and all this sort of stuff. This, this is really light. We have unicorns, hippogriffs, goblins, trolls, but we should say that for Wolf's first published story um, is a take on three billy goats gruff. Uh, and there's a troll. So I, I think Wolf is always enthralled by fairy tales and he's, he's trying to s do the thing he always does, which is put a subjective character experience in that world who doesn't have explanations for everything. And the mixture of that point of view with the fantasy elements is slowly making its way into Wolf's thinking and development as a writer, his next phase as a writer. 
Well, we also have this metafictional stuff that we should we should deal with. So let's uh, I don't know quickly characterize that. I guess what, what's going on here is that uh, people from our real world have numinously transported to the world of a story, and and the characters uh, that that are doing this actually also compare it to time travel, which is something that they've uh, done in, uh, I forget which of the three previous stories, but it's in in one of them. Uh, the idea that, right, if we accept that time travel is possible, then we have to accept that uh, traveling into the imaginary world of a book should also be possible. And also here we have Frigg saying, there has to be a world that corresponds to each of our fictions, since what never was nor will be is inconceivable. And so here, thinking about what Frigg says, thinking about this line, is Wolf positing here, you think, Brandon, is Wolf positing a multiverse in which each of our stories exist in its own universe, that the stories that we write actually become real in their own like pocket universe? I kind of get the sense that that's what's going on here. He's certainly predicting, you know, Jasper Ford's great success with the Thursday Next novels, which are all about uh, characters ex- escaping books and things like that, or people falling <laughs> into books in this way in this universe. Uh, Wolf is doing kind of maybe a more Borgesian take on that, which is that the the text itself is sacred. I mean, it's he he not sacred in the sense that um, you know it's like a holy book, but there's nothing extra textual. So these characters are relatively close to Thag, so to speak, in that they're near the end of the story. Um, But because 30 years was passed in a paragraph, they're still confined to the text. It's kind of a a new criticism attitude, I think, that Wolf is positing here in terms of the way we read and the way we ought to approach text, that there is, when we are in a story the text is what we have for the story and to go too far outside uh, with extra textual concerns doesn't do us any favors. Maybe as reading, we might get mired in the 30 years and miss the story's resolution. Well, and Wolf always hated what, uh, uh, what academics and critics do with, uh, with trying to bring (laughs) extra textual stuff to stories, which is to say, you know what we're doing most of the time. (laughs) Right. I mean, but there's, uh, there's ways of doing it that are, uh, about reviewing or especially it's hard to deny that the further you get away from a time period the more text you need to explain a text the the the, the bigger the piles of books become to explain something uh that was once not needed to be given much thought because it was just so normal as contexts change so do texts and so that that's what you know a reasonable use for the use of research or extra textual uh, work to to have to explain a text but the pleasure of reading is not that and the pleasure of stories i think which wolf is always always concerned with is not in is not necessarily in the extra textual work the wolf then becomes famous for his books that require or have produced a small cottage industry <laughs> of extra textual works around them. Though I think he would say the pleasure is should be found in the rereading and, and by returning to the story, kind of like his mission statement that we see in 
the the Island of Doctor Death and other stories. Yes, absolutely, and of course that is really the uh, the mission statement of of our podcast as well is just to try to be a community of people who want to talk about and celebrate Wolf's work. Uh, just we all live all over the world and can't congregate in the uh, uh, the same pub or uh, or hotel cocktail bar uh, every other week, which would actually be what we would be doing if we had teleportation uh, instead of the internet, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, I think now that I have uh, accidentally wandered into uh, dreaming again about someday hosting a, a wolf con, uh, when cons are, are once again a thing in our world, I think uh, uh, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Braden Buddha. You can find us and our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. We'd love it if you came over to our forum at claytemplemedia.com or found us on our subreddit, Clay Temple Media, uh, to talk with us about this story. I, I feel like this is actually one of the shorter episodes that we have done in uh, quite a long time, but I think in part because we were reading Act 4 of a four-act story cycle. <laughs> uh, we'll love to revisit this someday, but still, I think I had a lot of fun uh, uh, with this. So we're going to be back on October 13th with the uh, first of six episodes on the novella Silhouette which you can find in Endangered Species. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>